Good morning. I can't even begin to uh, tell you how humbled and honored I am to be able to share with you today. Uh, never get caught underprepared. So today's uh, talk is going to be part classroom lecture. It's going to be part sermon. It's going to be me um, trying not to panic. Um, I know everybody gets up here and they talk and they look all calm and collected. It's a little nerve-wracking. So I'll be honest with you, part of it is to me not panic and that will make a little more sense and honestly part of it is me hoping that I don't actually need that um, for anything other than a uh, visual aid. But uh, this is my story and so I'm going to be vulnerable with you today. I'm going to be open with you today because in the end that's what I'm going to ask and kind of expect of you is the willingness to be open to your story and to be open to the story of others because that's really how we influence others and how we are then influenced by the people around us. Uh, for those of you who don't know, I'm the Dean of the Center for Student Success and I've spent um, many years of my professional life starting at Grant Blackford Mental Health Incorporated here in Marion and then here in Student Support Services and then the Aldersgate Center and now the Center for Student Success. Uh, providing clinical counseling care for students and then when I was at the mental health center I provided counseling and therapy services for adults with chronic mental illnesses. So mental illness has been a really significant part of my professional life, it's been a significant part of my educational life, but I'm also going to share with you that it's been an important part and major part of my personal life. Some of my earliest memories of school are being that kid. The kid who couldn't be quiet, the kid who couldn't sit still, the kid who never seemed to listen, um, the kid who said things that were inappropriate, the kid that was mean to other kids for no reason, the kid that was always told to listen better, to try harder, to work harder. That progressed into that kid who had intense anxiety and self-value and self-worth issues of not being good enough for others around them and to realize that there were times when I didn't want to be but that I was mean to people. I don't know where Tara Smith is today but wherever she is I owe her a big apology because to Tara Smith who sat in front of me in the third grade I was also that kid who could not keep his hands off of other people's ponytails. At one point in time, I was that kid who could not keep his scissors off of other people's ponytails. <laughs> so those are my earliest school memories. My next memories of school are of this little tiny thought that was almost like a voice in the back of my head that started to tell me that maybe I would feel better if I started to count. And it started out counting by fives. And then it turned into counting by series of fives. And then it turned into this constant counting, clock ticking, repetitive sound in my head. Day after day, hour after hour, to try to make me feel less anxious, to try to make me feel less worried, to try to make me feel more in control. That voice turned into constant hand washing to where I would wash my hands so many times during the day that my hands would become raw and bloody but I still didn't feel like I could get rid of that tension. I still didn't feel like I could get rid of that anxiety. The, it, didn't, 
it didn't help. The hand washing turned into constant self-doubt. It turned into constant shame. It turned into constant guilt. It turned into anxiety that's almost so debilitating at times that I don't feel anything. And I don't want to feel anything. And it's hard to function. And it's hard to work. And it's hard to think. And it's hard to make decisions. That's my story. That's part of who I am. But the important thing that I want you to remember today is that's only part who I really am, where my identity really lies, is in the fact that I am a child of God, saved through the love and grace of Jesus Christ. My mental illness doesn't drive what I do on a daily basis. My mental illness doesn't drive who I am as a person. What drives me as a person, thank you, what drives me as a person is that love of Christ and that desire to be more like him in my life, but also in the life of others and to influence others in my daily walk. And so as we kind of talk today, I want to talk to you a little bit about what happens when mental illness, mental health, spiritual illness, and spiritual health all kind of collide. Because sometimes we confuse those definitions, we confuse those terms, we confuse those words. And For those of us who are in the church that are dealing with mental health issues or mental illness issues, it becomes very confusing. And for those of us who aren't, it becomes confusing. We all experience anxiety. We all experience worry. We all experience guilt from time to time. We all experience sadness from time to time. So how can we as a church or how can we as a body of believers reconcile these two factors of mental illness and spiritual health? So I don't really share uh, any of my story with you to get pity. I don't share it with you to get attention. I just share it with you so that you know that I'm not just somebody up here who's read a lot of books on psychology and somebody who knows a lot about human behavior and somebody who is trying to get you to, to change your life in any major dramatic way that you don't feel comfortable doing. I just want to let you know that this is, this is kind of who I am. So let's start out with the lecture. Some of you are going to remember this from your general psychology classes and your abnormal psychology classes, but what what is mental illness? Or in the field of psychology, what we more commonly call abnormal behavior. Well, abnormal behavior, when you break it down into its basic pieces, is a um, disturbance in psychological functioning or a dysfunction in psychological functioning that's not typically or culturally appropriate. And it really kind of presents itself in three main ways. It's uh, deviant, it's maladaptive, and it's personally distressing. When you think about the term deviant, that basically doesn't have this sinister kind of criminal evil kind of element to it. It just means it violates social norms. I have violated a lot of social norms in my life. I don't have an internal filter. My friends who know me well will tell you that if it's in my head, I'm probably going to say it. Um... I will tell you, though, that John offered me $100 to tell you a joke I told him before chapel that I'm not going to do because I cannot live off of the uh, $100 long enough to risk getting fired over the joke. So um, if you want to know that joke later, come and see me in private, and I will tell you what that joke was. Um, it's not bad. It's just not chapel appropriate. So it's, it's really toilet paper humor is really what it is. So, um, so if you want to know what that is, just come and talk to me later. 
But for me, deviance is um, sometimes not understanding that the words I'm saying can actually hurt somebody even if I didn't intend them to. I may have actually meant to be helping the person or to be comforting the person or providing them with something that I thought was beneficial, but I said it in a hurtful way. I wasn't respectful of their emotions. That for me is deviant. Another thing that is deviant for me is that when I was sitting in a building very similar to this one, it wasn't this one, I went to uh, the school that shall not be named as an undergraduate. Um, I went to Taylor, so I know. Everybody just quit listening to me now, didn't you? But when I was a tailor, um, I caught a mouse in my residence hall room, and for some reason I thought it would be a really good idea to take one of those little army paratrooper guys, those little plastic ones, with the little plastic parachute, and I tied the plastic parachute to the mouse, I took him to chapel, and I paratrooped him over the edge onto the audience underneath me. So sometimes my mental illness has brought me great joy because it was honestly like the parting of the Red Sea. I could see everywhere that little guy went as people are jumping up and moving away and he's running up towards the stage. Fabulous. Don't do it. Is that enough of a disclaimer? Just don't. So for me, that is deviant. Maladaptive means that sometimes mental illness keeps us from reaching our personal goals. School has always been really hard for me. Um, I've always done relatively well grade-wise, but I have to work really hard. I can't focus. I can't stay on track. How many kids with ADD does it take to change a light bulb? Hey, let's go ride bikes. Um, that kind of is my maladaptive. It's hard for me to get projects started. It's hard for me to get them finished. I have left a wake of relationships and shambles and half-formed relationships in my life because of the anxiety, because of the depression, because of the OCD, because of the ADD. I haven't been able to fully form relationships well. There have been relationships that I wasn't kind of carrying my fair share or because of the lack of filter, I ruined those relationships. That's maladaptive. That's, that's a maladaptive symptom of mental illness. The third one is personally distressing. That one really kind of goes um, without saying. I'm annoying. I know it. And, and I will tell people that in classes and I will tell people that in relationships. I, I sometimes just can't help myself, but, but I don't want to be that, that person. So I work really hard on those things and I I, I take my medication when I'm supposed to, and for those of you who know me, I will tell you that my pockets are, in fact, empty. Um, I took them today, so that's a good thing. Um, I'm also wearing brand new socks, which uh, is a big thing that we'll talk about in just a second. So um, empty pockets and brand new socks means that I'm not going to get fired. It means I'm not going to get kicked out of chapel. Uh, it means I may even get invited back. I don't know. But um, Personally distressing is this, for me, is just this kind of constant worry or this constant self-doubt or this shame or this guilt that goes, goes with what I experience inside my head on a daily basis. And so that label kind of preceded me throughout school. Um, my grades went with this little note that said he doesn't pay attention and he's a troublemaker. So I was a troublemaker in the eye of, of most of my elementary school teachers before they even met me or before they even knew me. And so elementary school was, was hard for me. It was a hard time in life for me because 
of kind of lack of friendships and kind of being viewed as that kid. So that's kind of the personally distressing piece. The causes of mental illness can be somewhat varied. We have demonic possession, we have chemical imbalances, we have genetic dysfunctions, um, we have trauma, we have substance abuse issues. So there are multiple factors of, um, of things that really kind of impact or cause mental illness for us. And it's really hard to individually determine a cause for a person unless you know them really well. And many times that's not even knowing them well as a friend, that's knowing them as a as a care professional, as a doctor, as a nurse, as their counselor. So it's really hard for us to determine what those individual causes are. So it's better off just to not make, kind of make assumptions about that. So now let's talk a little bit about mental health. What is good mental health? One, one author tells us that according to the World Health Organization, there's no one official definition of mental health. Cultural differences, subjective assessments, and competing professional theories all affect how mental health is defined. In general, most experts agree that mental health and mental illness are not opposites. In other words, the absence of a recognized mental disorder is not necessarily an indicator of mental health. One way to think about mental health is by looking at how effectively and successfully a person functions. Feeling capable and competent, being able to handle normal levels of stress, maintain satisfying relationships and leading an independent life, and being able to bounce back or recover from difficult situations are all signs of mental health. So basically what that's telling us is that we can have really good mental health in most areas of our life and still have certain areas where we struggle. I am um, fairly confident in my academic abilities now, fairly confident in my ability to stand up and speak in front of people, fairly confident in my ability to build good working relationships with others. I have a very good wife. She's a wonderful person. She's absolutely amazing. Um, we've been married for 21 years and she's been working on me all that time and this is all the further she's gotten. So, so really you can kind of question maybe her work ethic or her effectiveness. <laughs> but, but other than that, she's, she's amazing. And so most of my life goes really well but I have days that don't go so well. So just because I have mental illness issues doesn't mean that 99% of my life is not, is not moving and progressing going forward. So what's spiritual illness? Spiritual illness is really this connection back to our original sin. And when we committed original sin, we experienced the tragedy and the horror of the separation from God. That is spiritual illness. Separation that we create and we continue through willful disobedience and allowing sin to continue in our lives. So this chasm that we've opened up between us and God is this spiritual illness or abyss and we feel it on a daily basis. Genesis chapter 3, the first words that God said after the original sin. Do you remember what they were? Adam? Where are you? So immediately, the consequence of sin was separation from God, based on willful disobedience. Ephesians chapter 2 tells us, As for you, you were dead in your transgression and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of the world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. Willful disobedience. Personal choice to continue that separation. 
Nathan Hale tells us that this separation leads to several different willful acts that we engage in. Being ignorant of God's ways, choosing to act contrary to God's ways, arrogance concerning our place in the universe, busy making our own plans, constantly inviting noise into our lives, denying our sin, and being attracted to idols. So those become the physical and daily manifestations of our willful choice disobedience from God. What is spiritual health? The grace and salvation of Jesus Christ for each one of us individually. Ephesians again says um, that we were made alive in Christ even when we were dead in our transgressions. Our spiritual health is when we come to realize that we do not have a life without Jesus Christ. And we allow him into our hearts, we allow him into our minds, we allow him into our actions. And so when you think about your New Testament class, go ahead and pay attention to the rest of it. But Ephesians chapter 2 is really all you need. You were dead in your sins. You were so sick and separated by your willful choice and actions that you didn't even realize it. But through the grace and miraculous salvation of Jesus Christ, you are saved and have life. So what do mental illness, mental health, spiritual illness, spiritual health, how do they connect? First of all, you have to remember they're not the same thing. We cannot use mental illness or mental health as a thermometer or measuring stick for our spiritual health or our spiritual illness because of the element of personal and willful choice. They impact each other and they impact how we experience our mental health and how we experience our spiritual health, but in the end, they're not the same thing. And so we have to be careful of how we engage in that. The church has a long history of not doing this well. And so we have centuries of um, witch trials, centuries of trials and executions and persecutions based on what was believed to be demonic possession or um, satanic worship, which was probably the very distressing, disturbing symptoms of mental illness. That's our historical foundation. We have to recognize that. We have to, to own that a little bit. And a lot of that has been driven by this misinterpretation of what uh, bizarre or unusual behavior is. So, yes, demon possession happens. Yes, Satan worship happens. Yes, it does create mental illness. But it's such a very small proportion of what really is the cause and driving force behind mental illness that we have to be very wary of that interpretation. So, fortunately, the church has started to move away from this idea of possession as being the main interpretation of mental illness. But we still make a significant error in many cases. We make what's called the fundamental attribution error. The fundamental attribution error is that when we look at the behaviors of other people, particularly bizarre or unusual or kind of concerning behaviors, we almost always interpret those to a flaw inside the person that they had control of it, that they're choosing to act that way, that it's because of something they did. 
that doesn't have the spiritual or theological connection to it. That's just a psychological connection. It doesn't have to be faith-based behaviors or mental illness behaviors. We just typically do that. We tend to view our own negative behaviors or our own um, disturbing actions or our own choices as being influenced by the outside world. He made me do it, she made me do it, or I did it because they did it, or I did it because she did it, or I couldn't help it, or um, my favorite one was, it was like that when I found it. Um, it was never like that when I found it. So um, if it got broken, I'm the one that did it. Okay, so if you know my parents, you can tell them I just confessed to that. That's been a, it's been a well-kept secret for about 30 years. Um, but when you think about this idea of this fundamental attribution error and us assuming that our negative behaviors are driven by something outside but somebody else's are driven inside, that's where the church really kind of goes wrong in, uh, in our interpretation of mental illness and sorrow and depression and anxiety and things that aren't even necessarily diagnosable. So in his book, Why Do Christians Shoot Their Wounded? Helping, Not Hurting, Those with Emotional Difficulties, Dr. Dwight Carlson points to research and examples of an attitude permeating much of Christianity that assumes emotional problems are almost always due to deliberate sin or bad choices, which are often considered sinful as well. He goes on to say that phrases such as, it's just in your mind, Christ is all you need, or the Bible tells us to not be anxious because we have Christ, are actually more damaging to individuals with mental disorders than not saying or doing anything at all. Because what that does to us with mental illness or what that does to our brothers and sisters who are, who are dealing with a mental illness is it tells us to just pray harder or turn it over to God because he's the only one who cares. This has been a lifelong fear of mine and I'm going to do it now in front of all of you on purpose. What happens when we take something that we want to get rid of and we take it to the altar and we pray really hard and we ask Jesus to take it away? I've actually seen this happen in church before. But you walk away from the altar and it follows you home. I'm now left with some very horrible options. Either God is there and doesn't care about what I just tried to leave behind. I'm not worthy of God taking away what I tried to leave behind. Or for some reason, I'm still that kid. I'm still a bad person. I'm still responsible for that. Or worse yet, there is no God. That's the message that folks with mental illness get when they're told to leave it at the altar because it's not a spiritual illness or spiritual health issue. It's a biological, it's a chemical, it's a psychological, it's an environmental issue. This is where we get it wrong. How can we as a church get it right? First of all, we have to recognize that we can separate personal choice and willful behavior of sin from the symptoms and effects of mental illness. 
We can separate a formation between, we can, separ- we can create a separation between mental illness as a measuring stick of our spiritual faith and measure our spiritual faith on our love for God, on our work with others, on our compassion, on our charity, on our willingness to speak up and defend the rights of others. That's how we can measure our spiritual health. Whether I worry some days about whether my ink pen is being too loud, or here comes the story about the socks. Every morning, I have to check the inside of my socks to make sure there are not strings there because I have an overwhelming fear that those strings are going to go between my toes and make me uncomfortable the rest of the day. You can feel free to laugh because that is crazy. I know it is, but I still do it every day. I have been to the altar. I have left pieces of myself there. I've left my sin. What I didn't leave were the mental illness parts of me. I'm still like Martin Luther. If you can't read this, it says, I have CDO. It's exactly like OCD, only it's in alphabetical order like it should be. (laughs) So this is me on the outside, all put together, all shiny. This is me on the inside. You know what? God loves it all. So in spite of my issues, God still loves me. God still saved me. God has brought amazing people into my life who, when I carry this around, they're willing to stop me halfway up the church aisle and say, hey, you've got toilet paper hanging out of your pants. I just thought you should know. People in my life that I can go to and on my worst days, I can say, you know what? I'm really anxious today and I feel like I'm out of control. Can you help me with that? I'm really sad today. I'm really depressed. Can you pray for me and can you help me with that? Sometimes I don't feel like I'm really worth anything. Can you just remember to give me some affirmation every now and then? That's what we do as a church. We don't say, take it over there and deal with it yourself. We don't say, hide it. We don't cause shame. We don't cause guilt. We carry it. And we form relationships. And we form connections. And instead of saying, take it over there to Jesus because he's the only one who cares, we show action. We engage in compassion. We engage in work together. We engage in acceptance. We engage in inclusion we realize that our stories influence others and their, and their stories influence us. That's what we do. So what does mental illness look like to you? Does it look like the serial killer from the horror movies? Does it look like the homeless guy? Does it look like somebody on a park bench sitting and mumbling to themselves? Does it look like the crazy cat lady that's got 60 cats that for some reason are all named Princess? Or does it look like me? So just think about that for a minute. Because what it looks like is the people who are sitting around you. Some estimates say that 26% of the population has a diagnosable mental illness. It means that 26% of us do. It means that 26% of the people in your church do. 
means that 26% of the people in your family do. So what are we going to do with that? Yes, I left my mental illness at the altar, but I still have to watch out for those sneaky, devious sock strings. They'll get you every time, by the way. And I would guess that probably 70% of you right now are thinking about your socks. So yes, I still have to deal with that, but I did come away from the altar with a lot of really good things. I came away from my, with my salvation, knowing that God loves me in spite of my issues. He's brought some amazing people into my life who love me and that I love greatly and that I never could have built those relationships on my own. People who help me think before I talk. People who help me think before I climb on the ladder that I've set on the roof of my truck to try to get on top of my chicken coop. <laughs> that was a thing. My wife said, are you really going to climb on top of that? And I said, well, I was until you mentioned it. <laughs> I have the fact that I will not always be like this. I might be here, but I won't be in eternity. He's helped me influence others. He's given me the ability to do things that I would have never been able to do on my own, like stand here and speak to a room full of mobile germ spreaders. That's you, by the way. <laughs> so he's helped me influence others, and he's helped others influence me. This is how we, as a body of believers, can respond to the struggles of others. Helping them carry the load rather than shying away. Loving instead of judging. Cherishing instead of avoiding. Healing instead of hurting. That's my story. What's yours? And that's the question I want to leave you with this morning. What's your story? Because it has influence. And your story is tied to my story. And it's tied to the story of the person sitting next to you. And it's tied to the person sitting next to them. So be vulnerable. Be open. Don't judge. Heal instead of hurt. Now may you go in his grace and power, forever walking in his steps, always moving forward, and in the words of two great sages who none of you know, Bill and Ted, from their classic epic 80s adventure, be excellent to each other.